0: Well, good morning, Saints. Here we go again. I love that uh, lady dancing there during the worship, just so free and it just it was beautiful, glorious. And uh, I know some of you were thanking God it wasn't me at the front doing the same. It is a real privilege. To be invited again, even though I'm standing in for someone who was invited first. <laughs> um, I don't know, I'm not proud, anything. Rubbish. Some of my favourite people are in this room, none of them over there. Bit... <laughs> there the Lord, myself. Uh, this is absolutely true. I came across a website for false heretic preachers, and my name was on the list. (laughs) And I laughed out loud. I was so proud. I was amongst some distinguished people. But the category that uh, precipitated such uh, a title was that I was regarded as Vineyard. <laughs> yeah, okay. John said that it was I who have brought the vineyard into disrepute, but uh, I refuse to accept that. Okay. Should we pray? Father, we thank you for your presence. Thank you for. Meeting us. Thank you for our band this morning who led us into your presence. We thank you that you are enthroned on the praises of your people. We thank you that you are here by your spirit. And Father, we love you. We don't love you as much as we should, nowhere near as much as you love us, but we do love you. We want to love you more. We pray, O God, that throughout this week all that takes place everything heard and said and done you would just stir our love for you that you would kindle our affections for you father we want to live for your honor your fame your renown your good your glory we want to live for your church Lord we want to live to extend your kingdom and to live to crown you, Lord. Then we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now, teach us from your word, these meager words here prepared, take them, Lord, feed your people and equip the saints that we might do mightier works of service, in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew and chapter 13. And the theme of uh, this week is the king and the kingdom. And uh, so I want to bring just three very simple messages from three very uh, simple, well-known parables about the kingdom. So Matthew chapter 13, a very famous passage where the Lord presents numerous little Uh, illustrations and insights into the nature and character of the king and the kingdom. And uh, we're going to start this morning with the parable of the hidden treasure. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells everything that he has, And buys the field. I'll read that again. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Hidden in a field. Which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy. He goes and sells all that he has. And buys the field. Well we were gripped last year. By the story of the Chilean miners. Trapped underground. And their subsequent rescue and uh, for those who followed it closely we know that God had one of his secret agents as it were down there every day holding three services a day praying for them witnessing to them and and being uh, the presence of God in that place for them. But uh, in 2005 on a Chilean archipelago that was aptly named Robinson Crusoe Island Uh, Another firm of miners and salvage excavators claimed to have located 600 barrels of gold 50 foot under the ground and they claimed that it was the lost gold of the Incas that had been taken by the Spanish, they said it was the greatest treasure in history uh, with all their sort of instrumentation, they claimed that they 'd located it, that there were six hundred, as I said, barrels of gold worth nearly six billion dollars, and uh, they went to the Chilean government and they said, "We will bring it up for you um, for three billion uh, in advance. You can have everything that 's there. We reckon it 's six billion. Give us three. You get the gold." And uh, the government refused. Uh, but by Christmas, I mean, he went through all the press, everyone was giddy about it, people were thrilled, they thought, it's absolutely fantastic, this treasure's been found. But by Christmas, it was revealed that the whole thing was a hoax, and uh, it was purely publicity for the salvage company, which, as a result of that, no doubt deserved to go underground. <laughs> that was quite good, yes, yeah, so, yeah, that's really yeah. But what a huge disappointment that here was the promise, the proffer, the offer, the appearance, the claim that there was this treasure and it turned out to be nothing, just a lie. And in our world today, all too often, people are being evangelized by a lie. The world, the flesh, and the devil is offering them a treasure that is no treasure at all. There is nothing there. The emperor has no clothes. But there is a profound register in the human heart at this whole idea of treasure. There is a longing in the human heart, I believe created by God, to find and be fulfilled by treasure. And there is certainly nothing disappointing and nothing made up, nothing fabricated about the treasure that God makes available to us in Christ Jesus and through his kingdom. We are those who have found the treasure. And out there is a world full of treasure hunters. And we're called to bring the two together. I've got three simple points this morning, and the first is this, the kingdom is treasure. See, quite simple, but uh, it's in the text. The kingdom is treasure. Verse 44, part A, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. You'll be pleased to know that the word in Greek for field is the word agro, which I rather like from which we get, of course, agriculture and so on. I believe this week here in this place that the Lord wants us to re-find that treasure that we found many years ago. And for some of us we have sadly reburied it. Just the pressures of life, the pressures of ministry can cause us to put dirt over the very precious thing that we found And brought us into this in the first place. I have a friend who puts all his money into gold sovereigns. Bachelor, lives on his own, doesn't trust the banks. Whenever he's got any spare cash, whacks it into sovereigns. Told me once that it's just hidden all throughout his house. And he's told one person where exactly in his house it is, and he's given that person a key. So if anything happens to him uh, and he dies, they can go in and get the cash um, before the house is sold and so on. I wish he'd tell me where it was, but he wasn't. (laughs) Calls himself a friend. Jesus has told us where the treasure is. Jesus has already died to make that treasure available to us. It was customary in the ancient world, and even up through the Middle Ages, to bury your treasure, to bury anything that you had of worth. People didn't have banks in those days, and so they often hid their valuables in a marked place, you know, under a certain part of, you know, a tree marked out on their land, where they thought it was safe. Not under a mattress or a biscuit tin, but on the land. The Roman poet Virgil referred to hidden treasure. In the Qumran scrolls it tells us that at the time of the Roman occupation of Israel that many hid their treasures in the ground. We love to read about treasure being found by treasure hunters. Apparently this last year someone got very lucky and found a Saxon treasure trove in Staffordshire of 1,800 gold items worth 3.3 million. Fantastic. Imagine that. You ever dreamt about treasure? I mean, it's amazing how often this theme of treasure occurs in literature. We love the story of Treasure Island. As children or even as grown-ups, we read the the story of the hobbit with Bilbo Baggins who seeks to reclaim the treasure that uh, Smaug or Smaug the Dragon has hidden. We like the films and the you know, huge box office successes, Pirates of the Caribbean or Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's all about treasure. When I was growing up, I used to watch from my family treasure hunt. I actually think I watched it because I fancied Annika Rice in her in her sort of lemon jumpsuit. You know what I'm saying. And, uh, so I'm sure it was more about that than the pursuit of treasure in my testosterone-filled teens. But, and I've had ministry for it since. But anyway, so the, the point is, it's treasure. You like the idea of leprechauns and pots of gold and treasure at the end of... The rainbow and griffins guarding treasure. It's just a really recurrent theme. There's a real register in the human heart for it, and a longing and a desire for treasure. And I believe that Jesus picks up on this cultural fascination and uh, cultural hope, the expectation that perhaps they could fall upon treasure. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. It's a real treasure. There are three things. Incidentally, the word for treasure in Greek is the word thesaurus. I thought you might like that. A bit of Oxford there. No. Three things about treasure. First, it's rare. It's valuable. If it isn't rare and it isn't valuable, it isn't treasure. It's just mud or something like that. You know what I mean? It's a broken pot. But treasure is rare and valuable, and beautiful, and desirable, and precious. And it's it's not every day. There is absolutely nothing mediocre about it. There is nothing shoddy. There's nothing tardy about it. This is extraordinary. It is extravagant. The second thing about treasure is that it's found. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it you didn't warrant it you didn't pay for it it isn't yours but it comes to you utterly unexpectedly and the third thing is that those who find treasure their life is transformed that person who found 3 million pounds worth of Saxon gold the life is transformed and that's how it is with the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of heaven has treasure it is priceless. It is extraordinary. It is, there is absolutely nothing mediocre, mundane, ordinary about it. It is extraordinary. It is extravagant. And it's something that we find. The kingdom comes to us. It is given to us. We don't deserve it we don't merit it, we don't qualify it. There's nothing about us that says it's ours by right. It comes purely as grace and as gift. And thirdly, when we find this kingdom treasure, it changes lives. I was thrilled last night to meet someone who, I think I've only met once in the last 20 years here. Not, I've only met them once in the last 20 years here, but I've only met them once in the last 20 years, and I met them here. But they were there the night I got saved. The Anglican Church, and they were just reminding me of it. They're now a member of the vineyard. It's not that they can't take the Church of England. They're just in the vineyard. God called them there. And um, they said, I remember you coming in with your great big hat, hat and your coat, (laughs) She said, you sat next to me and you said, I don't know what I'm doing here. I didn't. But that night I heard the gospel. That God loved me. That Jesus had died for me. That the Spirit wanted to indwell me. To give me eternal life and life to the full now. And I said, I'll have that for me, even me i 've never got over it that 's why i 'm here today twenty five years on. Treasure turns lives around, turns your life around, and it can turn the life of those around you around. Some of us sometimes forget that. The explorer Christopher Columbus said that gold is treasure that nutty, syphilitic philosopher Nietzsche, who, as you know, we call Nietzsche, he said this, knowledge is treasure. St. Francis said poverty is a treasure. Only someone who was rich who gave up his money can make that statement. The architect Le Corbusier said a home is a treasure. Yeah. and They pulled down a lot of the ones he designed because people committed suicide in the 70s. Although he was a great designer. Louisa May Olcott said a faithful friend is a treasure. But all those things are out there for everyone. They're in the world. They're every day. They are nothing compared to the treasure of the king and his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure because it is the gift from a king. It's a king's ransom. It's a king's treasure. I read yesterday that Charles I, captured by the Scots, the English had to pay 400,000 pounds to have him released. I think it was money bad spent, but let's not get into politics. He, incidentally, thought it wasn't enough and felt insulted. But the kingdom of heaven is a treasure of a king. It's the treasure in which the king gives himself to us. It's the king's treasure and the treasure of a king. It's from a king, it's of a king, and it's the giving of a kingdom that is eternal and glorious. This is what we're about, saints. We're about the kingdom. We're going to unpack all this week the nature and character and some of those things in the treasure chest. But it's treasure. We've got to get this big narrative. We're the people who've been given treasure. The amazing thing is we're not called to bury it. We're not called to keep it to ourselves. We're called to get out there and give it away. We're the treasure givers, having found the treasure. You know, every kid knows that where there's treasure, there's a pirate. It's just part of the story. And we see this in our life, we see it in the history of the church, in the history of the purpose and plans of God. And the fact is that the devil is a pirate. And he is marked by death, the skull and the crossbones, and he is out to steal the treasure. To steal it and to hide it and to keep it from us. He'll do that by telling us that there is no treasure. Kingdom isn't treasure, it's just a burden. For so long in the church, the enemy has told the church and made nothing of it. He sort of tarnished the treasure. Or he will make us, make us think that actually it's the world that has the treasure and deviate us from the things of the kingdom to go after the things of the world. Or sometimes he may even make us jealous that others get more treasure than us that their church is advancing more, that they've got better stories, better testimonies, better inbreakings of the kingdom, or so they say. And the enemy robs us of our enjoyment of this treasure. Tells us, puts fear into us sometimes. I read the story about the Hope Diamond. It was a Victorian myth that was invented to raise the price of this 45-carat diamond. Funny, really. People are perverse. They said, whoever owns this... This diamond will die in strange circumcises. I was going to say circumcises. (laughs) You do not want to die in strange circumcises. Um, uh, This is not a new cult we're going to start. No. um, uh, Whoever owned this diamond died in strange circumstances. But the funny thing was it didn't put people off It hiked the price of it. But the devil puts fear into us. You don't want to take that. You don't want to touch that. You don't want to do that. You don't want to go there. You don't want to put that gospel out there. You don't want to go and and bring somehow shadows upon us. He wants to rob us of the joy and the treasure that we've been given. He wants to rob others of that treasure by hindering us from giving it away. In Exodus 1.11 we see the Israelites are in forced slave labor... Building the cities of Pithom and Ramesses. Let's all say that. Pithom and Ramesses. (laughs) I didn't sleep last night, so I'm still trying to. The Hebrew actually says they weren't store cities, they were treasure cities. Pharaoh is a type of the demonic in scripture type of evil he wants to enslave god's people and make them work for his treasure in daniel chapter 1 nebuchadnezzar the babylonian king besieges jerusalem and steals we're told the treasure from god's house and places it in the treasury of his god kingdom of heaven is treasure but the enemy is out to steal it to kill it to destroy it, to tarnish it, to suppress it, to keep us from enjoying it and to keep the world from enjoying it. And the fact is, saints, that we need to treasure the treasure. We need to treasure the treasure that God has given us. And for some of us here, I suspect that that treasure that has been given to you, The king and his kingdom has become tarnished. It's no longer what it was in your life. It's no longer center stage. It's no longer the main thing, the main story, the main motivation of your life. It's just a thing in the corner. Years ago on Antiques Roadshow, I don't know if I told this illustration here before in a different talk, but I'm a man of very few illustrations. But this is a good one. On Antiques Roadshow a few years ago, someone found, brought in this heavy black dome thing, whacked it on the table. And and along came that bloke who was the Oriental expert, you know, the one with the big kind of pancho villa dash. You know? And uh, incidentally, let's just talk aesthetics for a minute. I notice that there's a lot of sort of um, country and Western shirts here. I mean, is that the new thing? I mean, when I got saved in the when I, I got in the when I got saved in the Church of England, everyone had to wear cords and Guernsey sweaters. Do you remember those days? They were good. I think we should bring them back. But now you all look like something out of Nashville. What is, I mean. And you know, the thing is, it ends up intimidating me. I, I end up feeling conscious that I'm not wearing the right kit. And for some unknown reason, I even shaved my beard into a semi-goatee, <laughs> just, as if I was some sort of North American preacher. Right, back to this now. So on Antiques Roadshow, this bloke he brings in this jar, just wax it down, so, and this that, Pancho Villa guy says, "Says where do you get that?" He says, "I dug it up in the garden." I said, "Really? Where do you live?" You know, I don't know, Bognor Regis, he says. He said, "What do you do with it?" He said, uh, "I use it to keep the door open in the toilet. It's a uh, it's heavy, it's heavy old thing. Keeps the door open, a bit of air, gets rid of the bad odour, and that kind of thing." <laughs> I mean, that's why it was there, you know. I just so he says, "Oh, do you know what it is?" He says, "No." I just, you know, he takes out a penknife and he just scraped away a bit on the top like that. This yellow came through the black. He says, "Mate, this is gold." He said, "This is a Ming Dynasty gold temple bell." <laughs> he said, "Quite, quite how it's got the Bognor Regis garden, you know." <laughs> I don't know, but it's worth, you know. It was worth. I mean, that was. I mean, I remember that from when I was a boy. And it was forty thousand pounds, and that was like twenty years ago when I was a teenager. Well, actually, twenty years ago I was a man, but. <laughs> You know, I like to keep young. The thing is, treasure, not where it should be, buried in a garden, covered in mud, covered in, you know, somehow tarnished and stuck there holding open the toilet door. The point, of course, is obvious that God has given us treasure. But many of us, it's just got, it's not where it should be. It's not doing what it was made for. It's buried in the garden or holding open the loo door. And we need to refind and reclaim and reappreciate and re present and reuse that which has been given to us. It's the king and the kingdom. It's treasure. I mean, we, we're the people who found the treasure. In fact, the amazing mystery of the gospel is the treasure came and found us. I mean, imagine that walking along a field and suddenly, you know. Ground opens up and treasure jumps out. I'm for you. I mean, that would be brilliant. That's how it is. There is not one treasure in one field for one man who got lucky and found it. But every one of us and everyone out there is to be presented with a field and the treasure because Christ and the kingdom wants to come to all. That's the first point. I've labored it a bit. The kingdom is treasure secondly the kingdom is pleasure pleasure it goes on and says a man found the word in Greek there for find eurisco Eureka and he covered up the treasure and it says and in his joy went and flogged all he had to come back and buy the field and in his joy in his joy When we find this treasure, when we are encountered by it, when it is disclosed to us and discovered by us, when we meet Christ, when we hear the gospel, when the Spirit of God comes to us, when we realize what's on offer, joy should be the immediate and then continuing and permanent expression and response to that finding. Are you Pentecostals over there? I me. Mean, do you want to come up here? Okay. You see, the Spirit, yeah. I mean, last night we told the Spirit moves in certain parts. You know, I mean, I'm just wondering about this, but they've got it. They've got it. We're the joy people. There were joy here. Karas is the authentic sign of the kingdom. It is the primary, I believe, emotion of the kingdom. Joy. How much joy in your life? How much joy in your family? How much joy is there in your church? How much joy is there in your ministry? And if there isn't much joy, that, that's the criteria of the kingdom. You've got to say, how much kingdom's here? And I'm talking to myself, because I'm a grumpy old so-and-so. You know, I once you know, looked at Myers-Briggs to see if grumpy was a category, and it was just... <laughs> I think Paul left, off, left it off on the fruits of the Spirit, but I felt, you know, the, the more I've matured in the Lord, the grumpier I've got. I felt that the Lord was like, you know. That, and some of us, honestly, we're, you know, we're more eor than Inor. Thank you very much. Joy. A little while ago, I was talking to a very respected American church planter who's planted churches all over uh, Europe, and a remarkable man, a very godly man, and, you know, whenever I meet people who impress me, uh, I ask the question, who's most influenced your life? Not sure I'll ask that question much this week here, but... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I'm sorry, but I didn't sleep, (laughs) and I blame you. Because you weren't praying for me. I'm sorry, that was just a stupid comment. But anyway, so I said, to who most impressed you in your life? He said, a man called Jack Taylor, who was an American minister. Now, I've never come across Jack Taylor. Never, never heard of him. But others, where the spirit of the Lord is, you see. Um, and, uh, I, I said to him, you know, tell me about this Jack Taylor. He said, well, he said, uh, you know, he suffered greatly. He said he was, came into charismatic renewal and uh, then was rejected by his, I think he was Baptist, he was rejected by his Baptist denomination. Uh, and he's, he then said, you know, he lost two of his wives to sickness, uh, kept another two. No, he didn't. <laughs> 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 Sorry, well, I don't know what's happening up here. Eh? Uh, he, you know, he lost lost his two wives, and just, you know, and he was telling me this man suffered, for his faith, suffered in his faith. And I said, "Tell me about him." And he said, "Well, he said he understood." This is what he said. It's a quote. He has devoted his life. I wrote it down. He has devoted his life to studying and teaching the kingdom. He is the greatest teacher of the kingdom of God I've ever heard. I said, wow. So I asked him a question. I said, and what was he like as a man? And this is what he said. He is full of joy. A man who'd suffered for the kingdom, a man who'd suffered for the king, rejected personal loss, great cost, but who devoted his life to understanding and teaching the kingdom And the fruit of that is a man full of joy. Joy is the authentic sign of the kingdom. Joy is the authentic sign of the kingdom. It is the emotion of the kingdom. Love is the affection. Joy the emotion. John Patton was a missionary for many years to the New Hebrides. He records that the first time he gave communion to the converted tribe of former cannibals he says this at the moment when i put bread and wine into those hands once stained with the blood of cannibalism but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the redeemer's love he says quote i had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces that's the kingdom kingdom advancing, lives transformed, and an overflow of joy. Where the kingdom of the Lord is, where the kingdom of heaven is, there is joy. And we Christians should be the happiest people on earth. We really should. For we have found the kingdom and been found by the king. We have forgiveness of sins, righteousness declared. We're reconciled with God. We're adopted as sons and heirs and co-heirs. We're seated with Christ in heavenly realms. We're crowned as princes and princesses in that kingdom. We will judge the angels. We will rule with God forever. This life is just a mist. The greater reality for eternity is glory. And joy should mark our lives. And if it doesn't, it's because we haven't really got it. We haven't really got hold of what the kingdom is. You can say kingdom till the cows come home, but not have it. You can preach about it, but not have allowed it to have changed your life. Now listen, says I don't want to put a heavy on you. Because I know that for many of us, life is hard, you know. Paul, beginning of 2 Corinthians 1, says he despaired even of life. He felt the sentence of death upon him. You know, through many trials, through many sufferings, through many torments, through many disappointments, we press into the kingdom of heaven and enter into eternity. And all these obstacles are arraigned against us, which will seek to rob us, Just the attrition of humanity, let alone the attrition of the spiritual demonic realm, would just seek to rob us of this joy. I think there are people here this morning in ministry, and you once knew the joy, but it's dissipated, it's disappeared. It went like the dew. And you're just plodding on. Sometimes, you know, the Christian life is just left foot in front of right. It's not somersaults. But despite all of that, there should be this deep down joy. The word happiness, and you know all this, uh, the word happiness comes from the old Anglo-Saxon word hap. That means chance. It's something based on, you know, what happens to you. Happenstance, what chance is your way. But joy is something different. You know, if only we could wake up in the morning and understand God has chosen and condescended and contracted to live in me. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. Everything would be different in that day. St. Peter speaks of the Christian life as joy unspeakable and full of glory. But for many of us, we haven't really treasured the treasure. And therefore, we don't know the pleasure of the treasure. Lloyd-Jones, in a book on spiritual depression, said, I have no hesitation in asserting again that one of the reasons why the Christian church counts for so little in the modern world is that so many Christians are miserable. this true? Grumpiness is not a fruit of the spirit. I got a great pal called Robin Gamble, and you know he has a few basic rules for life, and one of them is never mistake the hemorrhoid cream for toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, you don't want to do it, no. Nope. No, no, no. Either way, it's not going to be nice. It's just not right. So. And I think a lot of Christians have just, they just, you know, they look as if they made the wrong choice that morning. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) that's great. (laughs) Good, right? Okay, then. You know, some of us. You know, you you lose your job. Lose your health, lose your home, you can lose your loved one, you can lose what's near and dear to you, You feel that you lose your ministry, some of you feel you're losing your marbles. I think God just wants us to renew that joy in him, we should never lose joy. C.S. Lewis wrote about his conversion. He became a Christian after years of being evangelized by Tolkien. Finally, he got to a place on the basis of logic, reason, deduction, that there was a God. He says he got on a bus and was going up Headington Hill in Oxford. He said when he got on, he wasn't a Christian, but when he got off, he was. At some point in between, he made a transaction with God, and he surrendered his life, said, come into my life. He did it because he believed there was a God. It was reasonable, it was rational, it was logical, it was intelligent, it was the right thing to do. It always is. But then he wrote his, in his biography that he was surprised by joy. He called his biography autobiography Surprised by Joy. He didn't see that one coming. There is a God, I, he's creator, I'm a creature, I give my life to him. Uh, I'm able to, you know, I'm far away from him on the basis of my sin, but God in Christ has died for me, and he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be the righteousness of God, and by faith I appropriate that, and I say yes to it, and I step in, and wow, joy. Didn't see that one come in. Forgiveness of sins, I could see that in the deal. Joy. He says joy is the serious business of heaven. It's a serious business of heaven joy. C.S. Lewis says that every single pleasure that we have in life is simply a substitute, an echo of the joy that we find in Christ in eternity. Saints, in our preaching, in our presenting, in our demonstrating the kingdom. We've got to make sure that we know this joy by the Holy Ghost and that others see that that really is part of the deal with the joy people. Treasure, pleasure, and lastly, the kingdom measure. It goes on and says, And in his joy he went and sold everything he had and bought the field. In his joy he sold everything he had and bought the field. The Greek emphasizes this act of selling everything. The Greek actually has an extra word that doesn't get come over in most translations. The Greek actually says, Pantahosa. Not pantyhose, but similar. Pantahosa. Sounds like a sort of Mexican tapas bar. Pantahosa, which literally means all as much. So the Greek says he went he went and sold all as much. He went and sold everything, everything. You see that? Our translation says he just went and sold everything. Text says everything, everything. Really everything. All he had, everything. I think we sometimes try to encourage people, we're so keen for them to come to the kingdom that we lose this important act of transaction, where they've got to sell everything. The finder of the field with the treasure has a choice to make, to continue with his life as it is and forfeit